0: For Love and Design,
1: the podcast. Welcome to For Love and Design, the podcast that explores the world of design, innovation, art and creativity. I'm Ross Lovegrove and together with Ila Colombo, in this episode we'll be talking about what is the concept of originality within creativity and if anything today can be truly called original. But before we begin, if you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date. Now, let's get started.
0: Today, we'll explore the concept of originality within the creative realm. I have a first question. Do you think anything can be truly original or is everything in your opinion, a derivative of something else?
1: Well, for most people, that's subjective. I mean, for me, I've always tried to pride myself on originality. Of course, in the past, when there was less connectivity in the knowledge of or the sharing of information, maybe the concept of originality was was fresher and more specific. You know, today, I think when... With the opposite is true, where you know there's such a dissemination of information, there's there's such an awareness and and access to imagery. I think a lot of people don't realize that it's very important to have historical knowledge of your profession, so that you can cross-reference and cross-relate. You know, in my experience, in in other fields Mm -hmm. like in architecture, I was always impressed by Zaha who had an incredible knowledge of her profession and therefore could really position herself with or against the flow of her profession. And I, th- I think that's really important. But things are changing. Things are changing quite radically.
0: Well, mentioning did is a very interesting point that you're making because obviously her work kind of always feels very fresh, unique and unprecedented within the historical chronology of architecture. So can we define originality, in your opinion, as something truly fresh, unique and unprecedented?
1: Yeah, I mean, in my own case, uh, what I've done throughout the years, I I practice something that I don't really talk about too much. But I try to break my own rules. I I have rules which are set up, but I I try to break those rules by being almost irrational. And it's that irrationality which allows me to see things differently. Prior, of course, to showing that to anybody, uh, (laughs) not wanting to appear too embarrassed by something that might be just so seemingly out there. There's different ways of of creating, you know. There's a sensitive, thoughtful, step by step, slow burn of creativity, but then there's this sort of explosive reflex. And I think um, people like Zaha and others, they have a an explosive reflex which is not initially conditioned by too much functional
0: logic. Mm-hmm. I like that irrational logic mm. versus mm. something else within the originality. Mm. We all know that as designers, creatives, whether you're a practice, a larger firm, or an individual practitioner, within the brainstorming and conceptual phase, we do use, or we may use, references and inspirational material. You Mm -hmm. know, mood boards are Mm -hmm. a very known part of a workflow, whether it's fashion for a, a collection or a new architectural building or a new product design, every practice that we know of, they do use mood boards. Hmm. Is that something legitimate at this point to Hmm. use mood boards and put together references in that sense?
1: I'm smiling because I, I was just thinking, you know, if you really grew up and you wanted to be the next Alexander McQueen you would probably study every dimension of Alexander McQueen, wouldn't you? Or at least the principles that underpin his positioning and his attitude. So, I mean, there is the, the creative and the attitude and, and the, the spirit of that creative. And then there's the output. I think if you wanted to be that next generation, that's what you would do. And I know going back in time that, you know, I used to love all the, the original, the modernist furniture. Saarinen, Eames, Batoya. This genre of designer that would simplify and clean. And that led to sort of what Werner Panton did with his S chair. And I know that because when I worked at Knoll, this was at the beginning of the 80s uh, outside of Paris, one of my initial tasks was I was given original blueprints by a lot of the great architects. I mean, talking about Mies van der Rohe, Breuer, the greats.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing!
1: Amazing. And SOTSAS and so on. And I used to draw, I used to trace over these. That was one of the things that I did. So now, intuitively, I can get a proportion in a chair, for example, that others can't, because I've I've been through a direct layering transition process that others probably haven't.
0: You are almost training your own data set. It sounds very much like what we're doing today with AI, the fact that Hmm. You were really training your brain by by drawing over those blueprints. Hmm. Hmm. You were visually training yourself to understand instinctively proportions. You were building your own yeah data of knowledge really, Absolutely. and you had this great opportunity.
1: Yeah, so, well, you get you can get that by a form of translation, but you can also get it through a form of of. Uh, Anatomical awareness, if you like The understanding of physiognomy If you go way back to the Renaissance Where you have Michelangelo, Bernini, Leonardo uh, Their classical training was in fact to trace in another way The human body That's why you know, I was in the Sistine Chapel recently Looking at Michelangelo's work And the realization of, of muscular dimension and, and proportion Is incredible And I mean... I just wonder, I'm smiling saying that because maybe if if my education had been that way, uh, studying classical sculpture, you know, um, figurative, that would have also led me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Maybe the duality of both of those is quite interesting because I'm interested in form Mm -hmm. and the muscular Resonance of, muscular is the wrong word, but the sort of fitness of form. Yeah,
0: that's uh, very much you. Mm. Um, There's still a very thin line between drawing inspiration and actually imitating. And I feel like a lot of the creative newcomers, they might be, even if it's like subconscious or instinctive, they might be doing more imitating work than actually inspired by work. Do you think this is because of what we just said, meaning huh, a lack great. of education that mm. they either did through a formal education program at a university or self-taught? I know you, you said it before, but s- still today, studying what came before you, is it something that we should all do to make sure we're actually doing something truly original?
1: Um, I, I mean, I could answer that many different ways. But I mean, my my reflex to that is <laughs> things of... Things of a whole, it's a hole, and it 's just dropped through that hole because there was a time when the, the speed of transition is very, very slow, so maybe that that knowledge was important now today, no, absolutely, mm-hmm. so I mean, uh, it really leads me to the position we are where we interface with new technologies uh, that augment our limitations I mean I'm not limited so I don't have a, a real issue with that so I would always be very free in giving out ideas because I know I've got this form of replacement therapy I don't have any lack of ideas and I, I, I love that free-flowing I'm working on something right now where I can't stop I mean it's just unbelievable the biodiversity in something that I've discovered uh, which, which they, I mean I wouldn't say they're all different but they, they, they're they a breakage in in each lineage. So there's all these new flourishing, it's like a family tree, if you like. starts with me and then it goes out. But I think, certainly in my own case, if you're talking about what originality, I mean, I am wholeheartedly self-referencing right now because I realize that those 40-odd years have been an accumulation of an archive which remains fully untapped. Uh, so, you know, I, mm-hmm. I I want to remain true to self, uh, but at the same time, I'm interested in what happens if you put what look like very disparate elements together and what do you get? And I mean, AI does that for you. I mean, it's in, in, in the most magical sense.
0: I think it's a very sensitive point for a lot of artists and designers. And I, I'm not sure we can all be transparently self-critical mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. of what we do or mm-hmm. where we draw our inspiration from. Mm -hmm. I know because of personal conversations we had in the past that you experienced firsthand with a chair of yours, this very sensitive topic of imitation versus inspiration. Can you freely talk about that chair that you were criticized of having imitated? Which one was that? Uh, It's the one with wheels. It's Transparent Top. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. what's the name of that one? Oh, that's
1: called Geo, but that's that's a very direct reference to George Nelson's work. I mean, when I mentioned modernism before, I mean, somebody like Nelson was very much in the mix. And what I liked about George's work was there was diversity within that, and he was very self-critical. So he had wonderful dimensions, but, you know, he could do things which were very simplified in their form, like the marshmallow sofa brilliant things which Eames for example couldn't do so I would always veer towards George Nelson's work rather than Eames because within Nelson's work in his DAF chair uh, and so on he working with fiberglass you could feel the anatomy the bone-like anatomy in his work and I own some of those originals and I'll never never ever part with them because they're amazing so when I was asked To develop a home office chair for Driade, that was Enrico Astori. People don't realise, I think, is what that build-up is because you know I'd come out of Knoll, I'd come out of Modernism. I understood how to make a sort of single surface organic shell. I'd been working on the World Chair, looking at absolute comfort in a in a polymer injection moulded chair. My body lines, you know. So that when I was asked to work on this, I worked with the model maker in London, Clive Williams, and we, we built this up. We built it up blocks and some um, you know filler and resin, and we came up and we sat on it and we cut this and stuck that on there, and then we came up. And I wanted to have something which was in two parts, partly because of the cost of making it, which was important uh, to reduce for a small company, and secondarily to have two dimensions in the polymer, one being more transparent and one being more solid both from polypropylene. But, you know, this was new. And so joining those two together, you would naturally get a degree of flex in the back. I don't have a problem with the end result, but the end result looked like George's chair. Why? Because when George went through, George Nelson went through that process, he went through the same process as me. I mean, that's what you get. So you rub your elbows through the shape, you hold the handle. I could have made the end of those tips square. And I remember at one time, I was thinking of doing that, just to sort of break my own thought process. But I was super aware of what I was doing. And I had no fear of going through a process that a great designer went through and got a similar result.
0: But Jojo Nelson came before you. So do you think that was inspired... No but, I mean, you could, you, imitation. no, but you
1: could give that project to half a dozen different designers working in that process, and that's what they would get. I mean, they, they would arrive at subtle variations of the same thing.
0: Yeah, but if, I mean, you did it to someone else, what mm. if people do it to your own work? Was that a mistake of your own young self in not recognizing that actually it was too close to Georgia Nelson's chair? No, no, no. I, I
1: think if i had just come out of the blue... Fine, then yes, you can be critical. That took me months. Plus, it was my provenance. I came out of null, which is from that genre, that generation. So I fully understood it. But when I was in that process, I did not go into the process to copy a George Nelson chair. No, no, no. I understand
0: yeah. <laughs> completely your, your conscious self yes. being true to self. Yes. But equally to the outer world you were imitating something that came before you. So it's a fine line Mm -hmm. in understanding whether you are legitimately doing something true to your own self, or actually you're way too close to something else that existed before. And I think this is something that is really relevant to the time in which we live, because we have all these people and young creators on Instagram or any other social media online, they are trying to express themselves and they may even come out of your own practice and studio they they they're, they're very well former employees of yours, and they they still may practice within the organic design field. they're trying to be different, yet it's a subderivate of what they learned through you, which is the same a little bit as your own chair. It was a subderivate of the George nelson so. It's a very sensitive... Uh, well, you, you can know. shoot
1: me if you want. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you, you're making me feel like this is indefensible. But I'm talking to you in a very natural way. It's very different today, where people haven't earned the right. I mean, they, they, they I, haven't I, come through that long process of, of gaining awareness and legitimacy. That's gone. That's different. And I understand that, that students in Marangoni or Royal College or wherever they are, they they can Google who they want, but they won't really understand what they're talking about, what they're seeing.
0: But what if they actually do understand? I'm, I'm just trying to understand whether that kind of process of evolving So Robin Day, principle. did Robin
1: Day copy Charles Eames? Yes, he did. Uh, mm-hmm. Did uh, Werner Pant- Panton copy Charles Eames? Yes, he did. Did Saarinen copy Eames? Yes, he did. I mean... If you take Werner Panton, there are images online of a chair made in chicken wire with newspaper bonded onto it that is a cantilever chair. Did Werner see that chair? or did it, You know, the Werner's chair, by the way, which I think is the greatest of all time, it is what it is. It can't be anything else. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I love is that sort of paring down and the honesty of what organic essentialism can deliver, especially then when it 's related to production technology, okay, something starts as fiberglass, then it moves into polymer uh, so yeah i mean i 'm of a particular generation, and when you ask me that, and you know for sure, I feel challenged by that because it 's something where I, I I feel very natural in in my Defense of that, but I can understand how other people might think. But it's not, you know. If I was with George Nelson, it, it, sitting at a table, I met George, but obviously before I did his chair, that chair, um, and I called it Geo in as an homage. I didn't try to hide. I didn't call it anything else, you know. And so that's really. A very transparent way of looking at it. And if I was here with George Nelson, we'd probably have a discussion about the material and technological evolution of anatomical chairs.
0: Maybe the (laughs) the answer to this topic could be to just be more relaxed and allow for sub to actually exist. I mean, Pablo Picasso's very famous quote is, good artists borrow, great artists steal. And maybe that is a state testament mm. to the idea that great artists internalize their inspirations, making them inherently theirs. Borrowing is, of course, temporary. And mm. when you steal, you're you trying to take ownership of someone else's voice, the question is, where does one draw the line?
1: I know where you're going. <laughs> I can sense it. But before we do move on, I remember, this this just tidy up that little thing on the George Nelson, because I don't mind opening up on that, you know, years ago, I'm talking about 30 years ago in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, I was there with Ron Arad and uh, Konstantin Gritsch actually in Heiss Backer from Drug Design. And on stage, I remember they had Ron with his fantastic plastic elastic chair, which I think is incredible. I think it's really brilliant, which is a process-led uh, concept. And all credit to him I mean to get that made and, and it's just brilliant uh, I think uh, and then of course they had my geo chair and, and Ron demolished it I think as this sort of worked out slow burn derivative chair and you know I felt a bit awkward at the time partly because I am somebody that could recognize the originality in Ron's chair that chair that Ron did was a technology driven material chair. And so great. But there are other aspects of what Ron does where they are borrowed. And um, so that brings me full circle back to what you're asking me.
0: Okay, interesting. It's always good to hear anecdotes from your past mm. um, and personal experiences. Yeah, I think we live in a time where being defensive, it's probably not relevant anymore. And we just be, mm. uh, we just need to be true to whatever the situation is. And we may need to, to develop a much more uh, open mind on the topic, especially with the new advent of uh, artificial intelligence and the rapid evolution of technology and relative tools. So today it's even easier to remix and iterate on existing ideas. And that's exactly what generative AI does. It has a built data set that comprehends everything that came before and it facilitates more originality or does it compound the challenge of creating something that is truly unique? I don't know. It's a double edged sword, I think. And up until now, obviously, yeah. those tools they've been regurgitating.
1: Depends what you design we talk about chairs here. So chairs have this incredible history.
0: But they can be anything. We're not just talking about chairs. We're talking about anything creative. We're talking about art, we're talking about product design, we're talking yeah, well, about architecture. That was a, just a little example from your past and I wanted you to be opening up on something that you experienced personally as other people criticism towards your own work, which is something that I think many creators are going through online, they may be criticized, or they may, may be shown that actually, oh, you did this, but this is exactly like that one that came before you.
1: Let me try and stay with this, because I can't open it up across all these different disciplines, suddenly, although I tend to agree with you, you know, it's it's that if, you know, I worked for a long time in research in my studio, looking at generative design. So it was, it was sort of pre what we would call AI, it was algorithmic design. And I, I, I created a series of chairs, as they were, which were minimalist, uh, but fed through a, a program, which the results were quite weird, but really fascinating. And they'd never existed before, because I was trying to combine something like absolute essentialism with what a program might deliver even if it's a very alien solution that got published by the way in domus and a super famous designer who i know quite well uh, suddenly came out with an ai chair so there are these people out there scooping up everything that's out there in every magazine everything online and think he wants to stay up to date so what he his way of staying up to date is bending it into something which then is made into something and then gaining the credit for it.
0: Mm-hmm. I totally see what you're uh, what you're trying to say and I personally think that the pressure of always being novel and yes. up-to-date mm-hmm. and trendy and of the moment can sometimes become a um, not only a credit barrier on one end but on the other it makes you an opportunist you know, yes. I, I think we're mm. all a bit victim of that, like opportunism in relation to trying to be trendy and of the moment. It's a very interesting subject. And it's a tricky one because of course, you, you as, as anyone, you want to be relevant, of course, mm-hmm. and you don't want to be forgotten or you don't want to be obsolete and you want to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the conversation is all about that particular field it can be you know ai at the moment it can be web 3 it can be anything you know if, if next year it's going to be all about augmented reality we're all going to jump on it mm-hmm. and trying to be you know novel within that field
1: well you're asking me about originality i'm keep i'm bringing it back to originality okay it depends what your precedence is because if you're dealing with the subject which has got a huge history it's very hard to be New and dislocated from its past, I mean, that's very true. I was thinking absolutely of the Olympic torch. Olympic torch has a presence every four years. so there's not much out there, is there, to be able to rip off. I mean, the last thing you want to do is is steal an idea from another country or another culture at another time. So, for example, when Tokujin Yoshioka did the Olympic torch, uh, for the Tokyo Olympics, that was beautiful. Yeah, no, and I was in his studio, and he showed me, and it was just unreal, and I, it felt so defined and an original. Wow! And then Mathieu's has just done the one for the Paris Olympics coming up, and I find that really original. Partly because I can't, there are no other references uh, except the cultural references that have fed into that, and the technological process by which it's, it's made so it's nice if you shift into those areas if, you, if you're dealing with headphones it's pretty difficult to be so original all the time
0: well the same with chairs and anything else that is a mass-produced mm, uh, object that's absolutely. why doing an olympic torch sh- I mean I can't think of a better project to be honest because yeah. you have these references from the past but they're still limited compared to the rest that is out there you know wow. it's not like a cushion it's not a sofa I mean I couldn't think of designing a sofa today it's like it would be so frustrating for me uh, to try to be novel and original and interesting and not stupid i think those are the questions that uh, probably many many other creatives uh, share Hmm. in relation to the technology that we're all using today like generative ai or majority of us are experimenting with i I personally think that we need to look at the technology as a tool obviously not a muse yes and You know, when we work together with AI, it's more like a research program. You know, we don't arrive at a final result with AI. And a part of the frustration within today's workflow is that we can't iterate the actual result of AI. Meaning at the moment it's still very static. What you what you get is what you get. You can try to tweak it a little bit and we, we are trying to push those boundaries of iterations with AI results. I think that once we get to a point where every single result can be molded, formed, morphed, changed, and, and crafted as you exactly want it, that's going to be like a, a massive breakthrough. And ultimately, we can arrive to ultimate originality, maybe.
1: Well, it's the dawn of a new age. I mean, it's incredible. You know my feelings about that, because I just, I'm completely blown away. I've just been working on a couple of things for a friend of mine and the reaction from somebody I respect is kind of mind-blowing. But these are AI-generated designs and they they blow my mind too because I really don't know what I'm going to get. You see, even if it has the genesis of my own DNA in it. Now, years ago, I mean, this might seem some contradiction in what I'm about to say, but years ago, I think it was 2013, when I was invited to, to talk at Uh, Ted Oxford, which is another Ted Global. I looked at something there that for 10 years now, Mm -hmm. that idea of algorithmic result that cleans everything up, it tightens the net. It's coming true. You see the really progressive engineering companies on earth, the space companies, aerospace, and so on, employing, deploying this kind of thinking, mm-hmm. because they realize they need a, a leap of good faith, uh, you know, that the human mind has, has reached a limit. So that's in a, a sphere of integrity, which is really incredible for me. But when you get out to the more, the boundaries of art, which are unrestrained, boundaryless, if you like, then it's hard to know where to go. So I mean, that's why at the moment, you're seeing such an explosion of of images online because i think it's people just desperately trying to pull an art form into it and and surprise you and excite you. I think when it gets into the seriousness of how you build anything, that's different.
0: Yeah, I like what you just said, the surprise, the shock factor. And I mean, there's some kind of desperation online in trying to grab your attention. Uh, There's a friend of mine who's a a video maker, very talented, Adrian, recently posted something on on Instagram. Uh, It was one of his stories, which are always hilarious. I think the text went like, I know you all, Trying to grab my attention with your shocky works, but I have no time to be shocked or something like that. <laughs> I like the idea of, of of linking shock and surprise to originality. I mean, sometimes it really works, and mm-hmm. sometimes it really fails. Like, I think majority of work that we see online, it's a failed attempt mm-hmm. to shock you. But for example, very young, early on, Damien Hurst mm-hmm. That's exactly the strategy he used. You know, uh, uh, in one of his biography, autobiography, he, he says that he, he spent enormous amount of time studying history of art. Mm-hmm. And he realized that one of the medium to actually uh, make it and make a name for yourself is shock and surprise. And he linked it to, to, to fear. So, for example, his early work around the, uh, the subject of death mm-hmm. came out as something really unprecedented and fresh and original. What do you think about that? Can, can we integrate some of it without being too conceptual and too abstract within design? And I don't mean specifically death. Well, I
1: know full well that strategy, and remember, I was around when all that started. Boundary Road, Saatchi. Uh, I saw all those initial those shows by Damien. Yeah, they were they were shocking. They had the shock factor, but the the shock made you think, and that was that was. Very satisfying, you know, because you just had to think it through for yourself and, and uh, you know, whatever conclusion you reach. But you even were encountering things that you would never encounter ever in your life. You know, the post abattoir objects from a shark through to a horse's head. I mean, you... That and the it, tusk. Well, yeah, but that, that in, that's enough just the idea of something out of its context, the the grizzliness of that in in terms of voyeurism. You'd never get close to that. You'd never get close to a great white shark. And remember, there's a fear factor in in the animal because of what we know about that animal. But there's also the, the, the fear of seeing death. In life, if you like, which, of course, as you get older, you, you don't you don't have such an issue with. But that initial shock factor has turned into a hell of a money making machine.
0: Obviously, it's one of the most successful artists of today, if uh, of history of art. But I think more than anything, that kind of shock factor also created an icon. Can that be the answer to being original within a certain practice? You know, is the icon and the iconography of a work potentially the answer to being original? Well, it's
1: great. I mean, the iconography is something which you can aspire to if you have a broader awareness of where your work is positioned, because the icon is a form of self-protection. It garners a closer... It's closer to you in terms of authorship and ownership. And I think it's, you know, your, your name becomes indelibly attached to whatever that design is. And of course, it doesn't even matter if technology changes. I'm sitting here and behind me, I've got an original Sutsas Valentine typewriter on my wall. Because for me, it never loses its courage and its sort of presence. So I like that.
0: If you had to speculate about the future... And where technology uh, is going and how it's impacting uh, creativity and generation, ideation of new creative work, whether it's art, design, architecture. Do you think we're going to struggle more and more? We're going to come to a solution to the copyright issue, for example, which is very much linked to originality because Mm. copyright is protective Mm. of an idea, whether it's a design idea or an invention idea. Or are we going to create more and more in isolation because we're going to go more and more digital and therefore we're not going to arrive to a solution where we all unanimously agree?
1: I think this is a very contentious issue, big time, because, I mean, it's fine for me in a way because I've got enough, uh, you know, back catalogue that I feel that I could just sort of arrest that, freeze it in time, been there, done that, and now fully accept the idea of instead of, You know, I don't like plagiarism. It just is a fundamental thing, and I don't think any artist likes that because it muddies the waters. Nobody knows who came up with it first. You look like you're copying somebody when, in fact, you're not. That's irritating because I think you're just trying to find some form of individuality in life that that relates to you. I mean, what's it going to come down to? Me making paintings where I make handprints like it's a cave, So that, you know, you can check the DNA of my handprints, so nobody can copy it. I mean, where do we come down to? Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you look out, out there, there's so many people copying one way or another the work of Tony Craig. But you really can't because there's such a sophistication in how he's arrived at that point that it doesn't even need any form of analysis. You can see... Aesthetically, with a trained eye, that bam, that you know, that it's got something to it, which is beyond this mm-hmm. in this iconography you're talking about. So, mm-hmm. for me, you know, if I recognize in somebody else, certainly somebody younger, a great talent, and I feel that one plus one would mean more than two, meaning I would work with them and I would see how we could nurture a new perspective, I find that really interesting that mm-hmm. you, you project yourself forward through a form of combination and collaboration. That is super interesting, mm-hmm. I think. And that's a, that's a fact of life now, mm-hmm. rather than I, we are posting things online. And I'm gonna say this now, I am so tired. There's about three or four people out there who, who are just taking it and they're taking it within the day and it's it's offensive it's offensive because it means i have no respect for those people because they would never have come up with that idea anyway they come up with the idea they do a little variation and there's everybody with their elbows out trying to get known i would put that to one side for now because that's really not important about getting known because you can do more harm than good to your own reputation by not finding your own channel of originality. I think it it, it can come by an honesty and an openness.
0: Yeah, truly agree with what you just said. And I hope it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. Now I'm going to run through some of the questions that uh, your followers have sent through and that relate to the topic we've talked today. There's one profile that sent through this question, which is, are you now convinced that you can create truly new works using AI that will carry your distinctive signature.
1: 100%. I mean, that's where it's at. And, um, you know, I might pull away from that in my own mind as I'm working. And then the moment I'm reminded, I'm blown away because I, I, I'm just seeing things which are, you know, I for years, remember I come from a generation where to visualize anything oh man you had to spend weeks drawing and coloring and god knows what and if you wanted to change it you have to do a new one I mean it was just such a a slow effort, whereas now, you know, I have a a mind that can fully rotate things in space with the light on them. I can physically understand what those things are. And in the past, what I would be so frustrated by is waiting for that to occur or or come to life. And for it to come to life, you have to work with assistants who have to understand you, like a conductor with an orchestra. All these micro nuances of how you write that music, the subtleties of that, and you know, I'm talking about very sophisticated, almost classical music, if you like, in design, and and then the, how does it feel? When the thing that you're looking at uh, is only sort of 60 or 70% there, it, it, it's so frustrating. Whereas, I mean, I think as an artist, you've got plus or minus 100%. It can be anything because you're not looking for a, a climax that's that's got this high precision of, of a visionary dream, if you like. So, yeah, I uh, that, that's where we're at. So AI comes along. And because through the prompting process, you can't really get this thing that you're looking for full acceptance suddenly because you go "Mm, I never thought of that I mean gosh look at that whoa I mean irrespective of overscale can't make it too heavy suddenly I realised that life on earth there are no real restrictions I mean I've come to this kind of conclusion in a fatalistic way with design that we need to force out squeeze as much out of this biodiversity and I'm that we can. In the past, just listen to some of my lectures, I would always say strangeness is a consequence of innovative thinking. Now, AI is doing that naturally, because it doesn't really have any emotions. This oddity or disproportion is what is giving rise to these glitches and a mutation.
0: Very interesting. I personally think that you're a very unique creative mind. You have a very... You don't just have a visionary mind in terms of thinking of something that is pioneering, disruptive. But you, you, your mind is very visual, right? Mm-hmm. You you, mm-hmm. you you instantly three-dimensionalize something that is a very primordial idea. So that's a great talent, and you have a very you have uniqueness in it. Now, there's another question that came through that says, well, if AI is a hundred thousand minds, or if AI is uh, hundreds of millions of minds. Will we now appreciate the individual unique mind of a human or not?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think, again, what you're going to see unfold is these tens of thousands of inputs creating something that's really never been seen before, blowing the whole thing apart and, and kind of repositioning the aesthetics of, of the world around us in the way that nature does, by the way, nature does that with, with great plume. I think... What's going to come out of that will be that individuals who can sit there and think it through, who have this sort of uh, very perceptive mind. Is it wisdom? It is a form of wisdom. Yeah. I mean, it's a big word, but I mean, it is a form of wisdom, meaning it's a form of higher level of comprehension and perception. Yeah. So that in an instant, you can like, you know, you can go yes or no. Yeah, I like that. It's a reflex. Yeah. So we're sh- going
0: yeah. to develop a new kind of reflex, or some of us are going to develop a new kind of reflex oh, that absolutely. are going to take us into the future. Absolutely. Who are,
1: those, who are those minds, some of which we know, some of which we, which we don't know, who can assimilate as much information, maybe not quite as much as AI, but they can. And they can assimilate something that maybe AI cannot, which is this dark matter of understanding on behalf of humans, because Mm -hmm. it's all about humans, isn't it? So this has to be a translator out there Mm -hmm. who will just say yay or nay to a particular channeling.
0: It's basically a form of creative consciousness or creative awareness as awareness of what has been created before. I like that. I
1: like the summary of that.
0: Now, the last question that links also to the topic, it's very direct and requires a very direct answer, I believe, is how do you deal with people who copy the design without giving credit?
1: Yeah, uh, there's a lot of that. And again, I think it's down to people trying to find their own position. How do you deal with it? How do I deal with it? Well, first of all, I kind of end up like the Incredible Hulk for a second. uh, The Lou Ferrango, I, I really inflate because I don't think there's any need for it. And I think intelligent people are fully aware of what they do. And I keep coming across things for, for, of people who've, who've worked with me or collaborated with me who blatantly are taking credit for things which they shouldn't. And find your own space. And I've, I've backed everybody. I've really supported everybody throughout my life. Certainly in my studio, I was really balanced in that way. So yes, as how do I deal with it? Well, not well at the beginning. I'm getting over that. If they go beyond and develop ideas that really fascinate me and, and take it further, then I, I would really I commend that. I think that would be incredible. Because I like the idea of spawning a genre of people who do think like me, who put everything into uh, the same sort of envelope of objective and and share that instead of sort of take and then go and try and make that that's not really right mm-hmm. so I, how do i deal with it i'm dealing with it better <laughs> than i was
0: that's great yeah uh you build your own thick skin towards this kind well, of well i don't want
1: to feel let down by people who i've nurtured for years and introduced to people and really help make their their careers so rather than take just give me some credit you know you know I learned this from Ross we did this this was certainly something in the air of the studio and I've decided to take it further just be honest if you're honest you probably transparency yeah I think you'll do better
0: and I, I think transparency is one of the things Uh, that the younger generations are embracing more and more and it's going to be for the better Mm. okay well now we're going to conclude the episode and i think that throughout this conversation we realized that every creative interaction leaves an imprint and being aware of those imprint is beneficial to the individual creative but also to the community of design art and all the broader spectrum of creativity, whether it's nature's patterns or a conversation or the creation of mood boards and references within a workflow. It's the dance of all of these influences with one's personal vision that can craft ultimate originality. Well, thank you, Ross. It's been a pleasure and uh, until very soon. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of For Love and Design. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow button. You can keep up to date with the podcast on Instagram by following at forloveanddesign.podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode of For Love and Design. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. If you want to keep exploring the world of design, innovation, art, and creativity, Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review we would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes too and don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest news and announcements until next time